Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. You've probably heard about Fiverr, a global marketplace of skilled freelancers. But sometimes businesses need to manage multiple complex projects simultaneously. That's why they created Fiverr Pro, where you can gain access to the very best freelancers, streamline your workflow with a user-friendly dashboard, and collaborate on projects with your team. Designed to handle projects of any size, Fiverr Pro is the ultimate freelance solution for your business. With no hidden membership or subscription fees to get started, visit pro.fiverr.com to sign up and use code VOX for 15% off any service. That's pro.fiverr.com and use code VOX. From Cafe and the Vox Media Podcast Network, this is Stay Tuned in Brief. I'm Preet Bharara. February 24th marked the two-year anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Although Ukraine has proved more resilient to Russian offenses than anyone expected, its position now appears more precarious than ever. Joining me to discuss the war on this anniversary is Dr. Evelyn Farkas, Executive Director of the McCain Institute. She has three decades of national security and foreign policy experience, and from 2012 to 2015, served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Russia, Ukraine, and Eurasia. Dr. Farkas, Evelyn, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much, Preet. So before we get to where we are at this moment um, and looking forward, what's our best understanding of the scale of consequence that this war has had on Ukraine, on Russia, the scope of uh, casualties, loss of human life? Could you give us a sense, a sense of that after two years? Yeah. I mean, well, the war has been going on since 2014 um, when I was actually in the Pentagon as a person responsible for U.S.-Russia and then U.S.-Ukraine, um, basically relations with Eastern European countries um, that had formerly been part of the Soviet Union. Um, that was when Russia first invaded Ukraine and seized Crimea and started a war in Donbass. But it was, as you as you rightfully, you know, kind of intimate, it was really two years ago when things changed radically. So the other war was on a low simmer for eight years, and the full frontal invasion was shocking to uh, the world because of the way that Russia fought this war. Russia, in effect, took their playbook that they had used against the Chechens in Chechnya, which is part of the Russian Federation, and against the Syrian people, um, a playbook they used with Syria's dictator Bashar al-Assad, and um, applied it to Ukraine. And what was this playbook? It was attacking the civilians, the way to, they thought, bring the government to its knees and to capitulate to Russia's demands was to attack the innocent civilians by bombing them, by torturing them, by raping them, uh, by kidnapping their children. And um, I think the world looked on with shock because it was happening also in Europe. Europe was the place where this had happened Um and was, you know, basically brought about World War II. Um, at the conclusion of that war, uh, the powers at the time, which were largely European and North American, said, we're going to 
and China um, decided that we are going to put an end to global wars. And we're also going to put an end to the horror of Holocaust and concentration camps and the slaughter of World War II. And, and we essentially created the United Nations and all the rules to protect human rights um, that accompany the, the UN order. And what we saw in Russia was in the middle of Europe, uh, something, a, a horror that we really hadn't seen since, I would argue, the Balkan Wars in the 90s, but in at such a scope and scale that it really made people think of World War II. And what is at stake here, Preet, is the real danger that this could spread and become actually another world war. Do we have an estimate of how much life has been lost? <sighs> that is a good question. I haven't looked up the figures lately. They're, of course, in the hundreds of thousands on both sides, Russian and Ukrainian. Most of those lives are military uh, military lives. But, of course, thousands of innocent civilians have died, and every day more are being murdered by um, the Russian uh, military. But, you know, also President Putin, in launching this war, he sent a lot of Russians to their deaths, um, poorly equipped, poorly trained, and um, essentially used many of them as cannon fodder. There's a town or a city called Avdivka, where the Ukrainian forces met with a loss in the last number of days. Is that a turning point? Is that an inflection point? Is that a temporary setback? How, how do you view that? It's been getting a lot of attention, and people seem to be anxious about it. Um, I, I don't think it's a turning point. I don't think it's a huge setback. Of course, it's tragic for the people of of Divka, and there were about 900 who were still there when the town fell, and likely most of them perished, or you know maybe they're still there trying to get out. Um, so it is it is a tragedy for the Ukrainian people there, but militarily speaking, it's not significant, except to show the world that there is a price to be paid for lack of proper support for Ukraine. The fact that our Congress has not been able to approve additional funding for Ukraine meant that Ukraine has been suffering from ammunition shortages, which certainly uh, contributed to this, this loss of this town. So had we been providing sufficient arms to Ukraine, likely they would have been able to hold out. So you're saying we can actually lay the blame of the Avdivka loss at the feet of the U.S. Congress? Possibly. I mean, I think we'd have to do a more closer accounting of the equipment, but I am certain it had to have contributed somehow, again, because they are rationing ammunition in Ukraine along that line. And, of course, morale is another problem, and m morale in the trenches, so on the ground level, but also morale, if you think about the political leadership in Ukraine, they have to deal with the fact that the support that they're getting from the United States looks weaker, and that will impact them in terms of, do we hold out and try to just really keep this town or not? Maybe we should be more conservative because we're still waiting to see whether we're going to get the next tranche of assistance and weapons from the United States. So what's the outlook for that next tranche? <sighs> Hard to say. I am optimistic. I really do believe that at the end of the day, the majority of the members of Congress who support Ukraine, and, and let me be clear, the majority of the House of Representatives, the members, do support Ukraine. 
it's a fringe right that has, in effect, taken the policy hostage because of the way the House functions, because of the rules, and because there's a leader who is ambivalent, I would say, in terms of how much to support Ukraine or whether to support Ukraine. But I think the majority will prevail and they will find a way to pass the legislation. The Senate has already taken action. We already see a package of about $61 billion waiting for Ukraine. Um, So I am cautiously optimistic that the House will do what needs to be done. Can you explain, since you mentioned it, this fringe on the right, how it came, because I've never understood a, a, a good explanation of how it came to be, given, you know, I remember what the political landscape was like in the 70s and 80s under Reagan when I grew up, how a portion of the right became either open-minded about or welcoming of or downright cheerleaders for Russia? I mean, it dates back to Donald J. Trump's candidacy for the presidency of the United States. I mean, I don't... So you think that was a change in 2015, 2016 because in part of the Russia investigation or because of Donald Trump's welcoming embrace of Putin and his praise for Putin? Because of Donald Trump's welcoming embrace of Putin. Now, there were other members of Congress, some of whom have since left, who were accepting money from the Russians, uh, who had close relations, you know, were traveling to Moscow. And Dana Rohrabacher is the one I have in mind. And so there were all, (laughs) yeah, yeah. So there were already these ties between, I guess, the conservative right and Russia. But Dana Rohrabacher was not the candidate for the president who then became the president. And so what Trump ushered in was an era where it was acceptable to take money from Russians or Russian Americans or Ukrainian Americans friendly with Russia, you know, and I believe there was a lot of money laundered through the political process leading up to Donald Trump's inauguration, and that some of that was captured by real-time, you know, investigative journalists. And of course, the Mueller report, you mentioned the Russia investigation, because it wasn't just coincidence that Trump and Russians were showing up in the same place. They were trying to help one another. And so without that, I don't know that Putin... Um, and and being pro pro Kremlin at this moment in time would have been acceptable, and it certainly, as you said, runs counter to traditional uh, Republican foreign policy. It's it's an utter warping of things that I, I understand the explanation, but I also I also don't understand fully. Well, it's populism, and 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 somebody just asked me that today from the Polish press, and I said there were a lot of changes going on in our society, demographic changes, the economic divide was getting bigger. There was modernization in industry. There was the rural-urban divide. All these things were causing people to feel unsettled, and then in steps a populist. So that's the way that I explain it, but I'm sure there are other ways of looking at it. So, But if you have a party, or at least, you know, generally speaking, a party who goes out and in, in rhetoric derides social programs in the United States as socialism slash communism, how can they at the same time embrace... Vladimir Putin, <laughs> who's right. the exemplar of communism. I, I just, I sort of don't understand that. But we can, that's for another day, I guess. Do you think either Ukraine and or Russia are making decisions about the war and about how they're approaching the war on the battlefield 
with an eye on the clock of the American election? Oh, absolutely. I mean, any responsible leader would have to. President Zelensky has been really careful to have good relations with as many players in the U.S. and then, of course, even internationally um, as possible. Clearly, he has a good relationship with President Biden. President Biden wants to provide him the assistance. He doesn't really have a problem there. Um, his problem is more with the right. And in this instance, you know, very recently he said, if President Trump wants to go to Ukraine, I'll take him to the front line. You know, he he says things that uh, demonstrate that he's not um, going to close the door on a relationship. Right. Did he and say he'll take him to the front line and leave him there? or? <laughs> Yeah, right. That that uh, might be a threat, actually. Yeah, it might be. But, uh, well, who knows what he says behind closed doors. But, you know, he did go through a difficult time with Trump, um, but by and large managed to keep himself out of the the fray, which is interesting because, of course, the first impeachment of President Trump was over his blocking congressionally mandated spending directives to provide assistance to Ukraine. But the Ukrainian president, you know, cleverly um, kind of kept his powder dry, if you will. You know, he stayed out of it and let let our Congress handle that with the president. And how about Russia? So in, in Russia's case, I imagine they're just holding out for the for the dream of a Trump second presidency. Yes, um, that's absolutely what Putin's doing. I mean, Putin always, you know, his his whole uh, modus operandi has been not strategic necessarily, but just live to fight another day. You know, he just, he does things tactically. If they work, great. If they don't, then he'll pivot and try something else. He likes to use as little resources as possible to achieve as much. Generally, he's been low risk, except that he did a couple big risk things in the last decade. He he interfered with our elections and then did this full frontal invasion. But I think for now, he will try to, you know, kind of husband his resources and wait until Trump comes into power. He'll do as much as he can to create trouble in the United States. I mean, we see this latest reporting on FBI informant being a Russian agent. I mean, these th this is obvious. I mean, the Russians are have never stopped meddling in our politics um, since they first started interfering, which, of course, even predates Trump. But um, with their accelerated interference, with the state-sanctioned, full-bore interference in our elections, they never stopped. What's your best prediction of what happens if Trump regains the presidency? Is Ukraine lost? Do sanctions get lifted? What, what happens? <sighs> That's a really good question. Let the record reflect that the guests heavily sighed. <laughs> exactly. Well, and I sigh because when President Trump was president, Previously, we know that he brought people into office, like one of my board members at the McCain Institute, Mark Esper, who tried, you know, very hard to keep the guardrails on and to keep Trump, um, President Trump, from doing things like withdrawing the United States from NATO. And he succeeded. There were good people who knew what our national security interest was, who essentially provided a break on President Trump's irresponsible uh, impulses and the irresponsible impulsive way of governing. And so I'm worried that this next time around, we won't have those types of people. And so it will be a dangerous situation for the United States and for Ukraine. Having said that, the Ukrainian people, they will fight to the last man or woman. They know they have no option, especially so long as Vladimir Putin is in the Kremlin. If another leader were to come 
to the fore. Um, someone who's more pragmatic, they don't even have to be pro-Western or pro-Ukrainian, then Ukraine might have some diplomatic options. But for the moment, Ukraine really doesn't. Basically, they have to rely on their um, on their battlefield ability to at least hold off the Russians, if not defeat them. So I, I think I don't worry as much for Ukraine per se, except for the tragedy of ongoing loss of life, because I don't think Russia is going to control Ukraine again ever. But I do worry for the United States and for the world if Donald Trump were to be in office, because it wouldn't just be Ukraine at stake and Ukraine fighting Russia, but Russia would then turn to Republic of Georgia, you know, take control of that country militarily or through other means, then um, Moldova, and then Russia would try to destroy NATO by attacking the sovereignty of one of our allies. So that the ripple effect of Russia prevailing, or at least Ukraine not prevailing against Russia and having an ongoing war with Russia, and the United States not providing sufficient assistance, could lead us to a place where Russia is challenging NATO, and we, the United States, have to defend a NATO ally, and then suddenly we're in a war with Russia. And of course, given the fact that Russia now is allied with Iran and North Korea, and politically with China, although not militarily at this point, you can easily see how this could become a global war. So that's what I would like to prevent by making sure that the Ukrainians defeat Russia and its aggressive foreign policy as fast as possible. Could you give your your most blunt assessment about the uh, efficacy and impact of all the sanctions that we've heard about over the last couple of years? Sanctions alone, You're obviously- sighing have, again. <laughs> I know, sorry. Have not deterred Vladimir Putin, have not stopped Vladimir Putin, but I do think they're important. They have increased the price for the elites. They have increased, to some extent, the price on the Russian people, although, generally speaking, our sanctions have been much more targeted, so our intent was not to hurt the average Russian. But I do think there's still a cash flow going to Russia, but it's smaller. I'm hopeful that on Friday, when the president announces the new set of sanctions against Russia, um, they will include sanctions against spent nuclear fuel, because that's another area where the Russians get over a billion dollars, I believe, a year, partly from us, partly from the Europeans, um, for our nuclear energy industries. And I think on dual-use items like washing machines and other uh, pieces of equipment that Russians will take and take apart, literally, cannibalize to get the high-value computer chips from them. I think we ought to be able to find a way to also prevent that flow of technology to Russia. I should note for our audience that we're recording this conversation on Thursday, February 22nd. So some things may happen between now and when people actually hear this program. I have a question about what Vladimir Putin's standing is two years in to this increased conflict in his own country and, and whether or not the killing of Alexei Navalny last week and the timing of that suggests that Putin himself thinks his standing is at a relatively high point. So his standing is at a very low point. Alexei Navalny said it himself and his widow repeated his words. Um, I was there at the Munich Security Conference when she did that. And she said, you know, she quoted him as saying, when and if Putin and the Kremlin kill me, it will mean that he is weak, that they are weak, that we are strong. 
actually, he put it the other way. He said that we are strong. And I think that's right. Vladimir Putin has been increasingly unpopular in Russia. The full frontal war has made him even more unpopular. The people who disagreed with his policy most have voted with their feet. You know, hundreds of thousands of Russians have fled. The ones who remain are trying to avoid having to fight an unpopular war in Ukraine that you're not even allowed to call a war in Russia. That's why we have dissidents like Vladimir Karamurza, who was a pallbearer at John McCain's funeral, um, sitting in a prison in, in Siberia because he called it a war, not a special operation, quote unquote, which is what Putin wants people to call it. Aside from that, the way we know that he's still an unpopular inside Russia is very recently the Russians, uh, in the context of, of Russian elections, they will be held on March 17th. The Russians pretend they have a competitive election, so they allow certain people to run against the Russian main political party, Putin's party, and against Putin. But they're not really serious opponents, but they're kind of fig leaf opponents. Well, one of these guys actually started to develop a, an explicit anti-war platform, and people realized it. And so people were lining up all over Russia to sign his election petition so he could be on the ballot. And he managed to get 200,000 signatures. So he suddenly was very popular. And this was a huge sign yeah. to the Kremlin that the war was not popular and the war is Putin's war. So that's a long answer to your question, Preet. But Vladimir Putin was at his low point. Killing Navalny did not make him stronger. It made him more feared, perhaps. Um, but it also demonstrates a significant weakness. What should people be looking for in the coming months to assess which way the war is going? Well, clearly, whether the Ukrainians make progress either on the land or on the sea um, or in the air uh, militarily, because what isn't talked about very much is the fact that the Ukrainians have reopened commerce in the Black Sea. So they now have free and relatively safe transit in and out of Ukrainian ports on the Black Sea, which is new. It, it, you might recall in the past, it was something that Turkey was negotiated with Russia just to get grain out. Now the Ukrainians can conduct normal trade. If they can continue doing that, but even expand that the space and threaten Crimea and the Russian waters even more, that would be significant. If they can get longer range artillery, whether it's from the United States as part of the next package or from the Europeans, then they can also continue to take their advantage in the maritime domain and perhaps also on land. The F-16s are coming soon. I don't know that they're coming in enough numbers to make a huge difference, but if they come and there's enough of a surprise impact, that's significant. I think looking inside Russia. Um, I would be very interested to see how many people come out on March 17th at noon, which was the last kind of directive that Navalny issued from his Arctic prison. He said um, the Russians should demonstrate their protest um, against Putin by coming to the election polls exactly at noon on the 17th. So if there are a lot of people who show up exactly at noon on March 17th, that will be also interesting. So those are a few, just a few items that I, I would be looking for. Overall, I think that right now the autocrats feel like they're they have the initiative and the advantage vis-a-vis -vis the democracies. But I think that can easily change, and I look forward to seeing it change. Me too. And on that <laughs> note, thanks again for your work. Thanks for your insight. Thanks for focusing on these issues and explaining them to us. 
Dr. Evelyn Farkas, thank you. Thank you for having me on, Preet. It's an honor. For more analysis of legal and political issues making the headlines, become a member of the Cafe Insider. Members get access to exclusive content, including the weekly podcast I host with former U.S. attorney Joyce Vance. Head to cafe.com slash insider to sign up for a trial. That's cafe.com slash insider. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. You can also now reach me on threads, or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to letters at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by Cafe and the Vox Media Podcast Network. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The technical director was David Tadashore. The deputy editor is Celine Rohr. The editorial producer is Noah Azulai. And the cafe team is Matthew Billy, Nat Wiener, Jake Kaplan, and Claudia Hernandez. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm your host, Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.